Revelation chapter 1, I could spend a lot of time giving introductory remarks and such, but let's just jump right into it. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. The first few words of this marvelous book of the Bible tell us what it's all about. Flat out, straight ahead, it tells us it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the the ancient Greek word that's translated revelation there is apocalypsis. We get our word apocalypse from it, and that's why in some Bibles you'll see this book titled as the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. All that's sort of irrelevant. What matters is what the word means. And it means a revealing, an unveiling. And what does this book of Revelation reveal? What does it unveil? Well, if you notice here, verse 1, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' revelation, first of all, in the sense that it belongs to him. This is Jesus' revelation. He has it, and he's giving it to us. He gave it to John, and through John, he gives it to us. But it's also Jesus' revelation in the sense that he is the object that is being revealed. Jesus is the one revealed by the book of Revelation. From the outset, we're given the most important truth about the book of Revelation, is that it teaches us and it reveals to us Jesus Christ. Now, this book shows us the Antichrist. It shows us God's judgment. It shows us the 144,000. It shows us the two witnesses. It shows us mystery Babylon. It shows us this. It shows us that. It shows us the other thing. But more than anything else, this book reveals to us Jesus Christ. And I tell you this tonight, if you catch everything else in this book, but miss Jesus, you've missed the book of Revelation. It reveals to us Jesus. And might I say how we need a revelation of Jesus Christ. How we need him to be revealed to us. When you think about weak or low times in your Christian life, or when you think about Christians that you know who maybe live weak or low Christian lives, isn't it true that at those times, Jesus isn't as real to you as he should be? And for many Christians, that's exactly who Jesus is. He's a very distant kind of person. For all they know of their experience and of their life with him, Jesus may as well be one of those faces up on Mount Rushmore. Right? I mean, they know that George Washington lived, and, and Abraham Lincoln lived, and, and Theodore Roosevelt lived, and Thomas Je- the, there they are, the faces are up there on Mount Rushmore, and they're, well, they're historical people, and they had an impact on this world, and yes, isn't it wonderful that they know they lived and existed? But for some people, that's about how real Jesus is to them. He's just a historical figure. He's just someone who lived and taught and did a few things. Jesus Christ wants to reveal himself to you. He wants you to know him. He wants to enter into a very personal, very vital relationship with you. And I believe that this book of the Bible, not exclusively, but I believe there's a promise in here that tells us it will. This book of the Bible will reveal Jesus Christ to you. We're going to see that in a remarkable way this evening. But take a look here. It says again, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Now, this is an important reason why God gave this revelation of Jesus Christ. He gave it to show his servants. God gave this so that it might be shown, not hidden. 
It's apocalypse. That means a revelation. There's a very similar Greek word that means something hidden. It's the word apocrypha. I don't know if you've ever heard of the apocryphal books of the Bible. Well, really what that means is the hidden books. And of course, they're not scriptural books at all, but the idea is that they're hidden or that they're secret. Well, friends, this is not hidden. It's not secret. God gave it that it might be shown, it says there in verse 1. If you notice also, following upon that, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants... Things which must shortly take place. This describes when the events of the book will take place. They will happen shortly. And they must happen shortly. It says that in verse 1, things which must happen shortly. Now, this means a few things. First of all, it tells us that the book of Revelation is a book of predictive prophecy. It speaks of things that will happen in the future, at least future from the time John was writing about, right? Now, not all prophecy is predictive. Many times when the prophets of the Old Testament spoke, they weren't necessarily predicting the future. They were merely the mouthpieces of God to speak to his people. Not all prophecy is predictive in nature. But the book of Revelation is filled with predictive prophecy because we're told very plainly here that it concerns things which must shortly take place. Now, Some people would say that we shouldn't be concerned with prophecy, that it's a frivolous exercise. Well, I agree that there are some people who seem to be out of balance, out of bent in this area in their Christian life, and perhaps they have an unhealthy interest not in biblical prophecy, but in prophetic speculation. They're constantly adding up the numbers of names and trying to figure out who uh, you know, if, if it's really a, a Henry Kissinger or Bill Clinton or Mikhail Gorbachev, do you remember that one? Well, we knew, didn't we? When we saw that stain on his forehead, we knew. Oh, yeah, you, nobody was getting that one by us. Well, it's possible. It's possible to have an unhealthy interest in prophetic speculation My friends, I I just cannot see at all how anybody could have an unhealthy interest in biblical prophecy. If God thought enough to tell it to us, if God thought enough to record it for us in his eternal word, then we should be interested in it. So we want to take careful aim at this and pay close attention. Of course, you did notice something else about that word shortly, right? It says things which must shortly take place. When John says that these things must shortly take place, what does he mean? How short is short? How near is near? Well, first of all, let's recognize again, and it's this way when you translate anything from one language to another. Sometimes you can't find the exact right word to translate an idea. And shortly doesn't necessarily translate the full idea of the ancient Greek word that John used here. You see, the the idea is not that it's necessarily short in the time that it's going to come, but the idea behind that ancient Greek phrase is that it's quickly or or suddenly coming to pass. It it indicates the, the rapidity with which it will take place, not with how soon it will happen. Although we must say as well that short and near are relative terms, aren't they? To God it's short. To God, it's near. And you know what? To you, it'll be short. To you, it will be near. We are so bound up in this human existence as well we should be. What else can we be? 
You may as well tell a, a fish to talk about the world outside of the water as to try to elevate us from this time domain that we live in. But friends, one day we will be liberated from it. We will live in the realm of eternity. And when we live and walk in eternity, we're going to see this life that we lived on this earth as if it were an eye blink. So it is short. The time is near. You notice here, verse 1 also says, And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now this describes how the message is delivered in the book of Revelation. It is a book of signs. Literally speaking here, it's just what it says there in the English. Revelation 1.1 says that he sent and signified it. He signified it. The book of Revelation is bound up and communicates much of its message in signs. That's its method of communication. Now, we might well ask, why does God use signs in the book of Revelation? After all, hasn't this been one of the main causes of difficulty with the book? Is God sort of playing a game of guess this mystery or guess this sign in the book of Revelation? You know, you get a special prize if you guess it right. No. I think the signs are necessary. They're unavoidable because John expresses the things of heaven. Now, when Paul had a trip to heaven. By the way, it's marvelous, and I could talk on and on about Paul's trip to heaven as it's described in the book of 2 Corinthians. So different from people that you hear today describing their trips to heaven. I'm thinking prominent evangelists or what have you in the world today. You know, when they have their trip to heaven, they can't wait to write about it. They can't wait to you know, publish it. Paul didn't talk about his trip to heaven for years and years. And when he spoke about it, he only spoke about it reluctantly. And even when he wrote about it, he wrote about it as if it happened to somebody else. But we know really it happened to Paul. And the whole point of Paul's relating of his trip to heaven wasn't to say all the wonderful things that he saw or experienced, but to relate why it was that God gave him a thorn in the flesh in the aftermath of it. In any regard, when Paul had this experience in heaven, it says that he heard things, again, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, he says he heard things, or things were expressed to him with inexpressible words. Well, if it's inexpressible words, how do you describe it? You can't. So you use pictures, you use signs, and, and that's one of the reasons why there's so rich, full of signs in the book of Revelation. You see, we need to understand, to us, this book is prophecy. But to John, he simply uh, recorded history unfolding before him as he saw it. God gave him visions and, and, and pictures of what was happening, and he simply described what he saw. I think the signs are also necessary for another reason. Because there's tremendous power in symbolic language. Now, when I say symbolic, I don't mean empty symbols. Please don't think that we're going to approach the book of Revelation and approach it as a book full of empty, sort of esoteric symbols. Not at all. The book of Revelation is filled with symbols, but they're potent symbols, rich symbols. For example, it's one thing to call a person or institution evil or bad. That's a bad person, you could say. Or how about if you say this? There's a woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Now, that's a vivid picture, isn't it? That communicates with a power far more rich than saying, that's a bad person. And so that's another reason why the signs are here in the book of Revelation. 
Even though the book of Revelation is filled with signs, I believe it really is accessible to those who have an understanding of the first 65 books of the Bible, and especially an understanding of the first 39 books of the Bible, the Old Testament. You see, the book of Revelation is deeply, deeply rooted in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation contains more than 500 allusions to the Old Testament, and 278 of the 404 verses in Revelation, that's 70% of the verses in the book of Revelation, make some kind of reference to the Old Testament. This is, if you will, an Old Testament book put in the New Testament. In any regard, again, verse 1, joining here at the end of the verse, it says, And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, Now, again, who was this John? Well, there are a few different persons named John described for us in the New Testament. By almost everybody's understanding, and my own included, this is the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, the same one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he plainly, if you notice here at the end, or excuse me, the beginning of verse 2, it says that he bore witness to the Word of God. I find this fascinating. Have you wondered at times whether or not Paul or Peter or Luke, when they were writing out the scrolls or dictating to a scribe who wrote out the scrolls, did you ever wonder if they were aware if they were writing Holy Scripture? And I think the answer to that is sometimes they were aware and sometimes they weren't. I mean, you you can't help but read some of Paul's and see some of the letters of Paul, I should say, and read the urgency and the the, the feeling there, and you don't sense any tremendous awareness on his part that he's writing Holy Scripture. I mean, there's a problem, and he needs to fix it. But on other occasions, it seems that they did understand the weight of what they were doing, and this is one of those occasions. Look at what John calls what he writes, who bore witness to the Word of God. He says, I'm delivering to you the Word of God. He calls it a revelation from God. He knew that it came from the Father through Jesus and not from any mere human. And he knows that it's the Holy Scripture because he calls it the Word of God. And then he goes on, look at it here, verse 2. Who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all the things that he saw. This is the testimony of Jesus Christ. This isn't John's testimony. This is the Word of Jesus. This is the Word of God. And I can't say whether Peter or Paul or other New Testament writers were aware that they were penning Holy Scripture, but John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, he knew. He knew that it was Holy Scripture. Therefore, he says in verse 3, and this builds on the thought, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now that's why you're here tonight, right? You're here to get a blessing. God promises you a blessing for understanding and keeping the book of Revelation. Now, again, that's a marvelous evidence of the fact that John knew he was writing Holy Scripture. Do you imagine anybody being so bold to say that of just a human writing? You'll get a special blessing if you read my book. I suppose there's people that proud to talk that kind of way in today's world, but they only have the right to talk that way about the Holy Scriptures, don't they? And so uh, John recognized this, and and John gives this beautiful, beautiful promise. Notice this. He he says, too, he who reads and those who hear in this third verse here, 
It shows that this book was intended to be read publicly just as the other accepted scriptures. That's often what they would do in early church service, just as we do. They would publicly read the scriptures, and the pastor or teacher would comment on the text as he read through it or after reading through it. And so here it is, and John's saying, well, you know, you're going to read this in the churches. Isn't it wonderful here? Now notice this. He said, blessed is he who reads. That's in the singular, right? It's talking about one reader and how many listeners? Many listeners. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the word of this prophecy. In other words, John has in mind exactly what we're doing right here. Somebody reading and explaining and other people listening. If John were writing in our modern day sort of language and vernacular, he'd say, blessed is the pastor who teaches Revelation and blessed is the congregation who hears it. Man, I'm in line for that one. I want to get some of that. I trust you do too. Now, let's get in here to to verse 4 together. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. First of all, this letter is addressed. And who is it addressed to? To the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, next week we're going to pick up this thought of the seven churches which are in Asia in greater depth. What exactly these churches were, if John means something symbolic by this, as well as literal churches. We'll talk about that more next week. But I just want you to understand this. These seven churches, these seven congregations, were located in a place in Asia. Now, when we think of Asia, we think of China, Korea, Japan, that's not what John is talking about. He's talking about the Roman province of Asia. In the Roman Empire, there was a province known as Asia. We call that today modern-day Turkey. And so it's in the land of what we consider modern-day Turkey, in that area of land, it's the province of Asia. And so it's directed, first and foremost, to these seven churches which are in Asia. And we'll be talking about that again more next week. So he gives a familiar greeting, if you notice there in verse 4, grace and peace. And then notice who the grace to you and peace is from. It's from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. You see who the greeting's from? From the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and from the Son. First of all, it describes the Father. From him who is and who was and who is to come. Here, John brings a greeting from God the Father who's described with this title. When God is described as the one who is and who was and who is to come, it speaks of his eternal nature as God. It has in mind the idea of a timeless being, and it's connected with the name Yahweh found in the Old Testament. Again, the Greek construction here in the grammar of who is, who was, and who is to come, it's intentionally awkward. It's like John is using bad grammar here to communicate an idea. He's communicating the idea of timelessness and eternity. You see, my friends, it's never enough just to say that God is, or just to say that he was, or just to say that he is to come. As Lord over eternity, he rules over the past, over the present, and over the future. 
Now, of course, this description applies to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as well as God the Father. But because God the Holy Spirit and God the Son are pointed out in the next couple verses, we believe that John's focusing on God the Father here. Notice here again, verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Here John brings a greeting from God the Holy Spirit, who's described with this title. The seven spirits who are before his throne speaks of the perfection and the completion of the Holy Spirit. Friends, as we make our way through the book of Revelation, you may almost get tired of the number seven. It's going to be repeated over and over and over again. Matter of fact, we ran across our first seven and didn't even notice it. In verse 3, where it says, Blessed is he who reads. That's the first of seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Here's a little challenge for you. Why don't you go through the book of Revelation and find the other six? Seven times in the book of Revelation, it says, Blessed is he who... And then it pronounces a blessing on somebody. We'll go through and find out who the rest of the six people are, six categories of people who are being blessed. These are the Beatitudes of the book of Revelation. You'll find this seven and seven and seven, this pattern repeated over and over again. Now, biblically speaking, the number seven speaks to perfection and completion. After all, how many days in a week are there? There, There's seven. Seven is just such a, a unit that has endured in the mind of man. It's a picture of completion, of, of finality. God built it that way from the very beginning. So this idea of completion and perfection, John uses an Old Testament description here of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, he's quoting an idea from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where it describes seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. So we have a greeting from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Now look at it here. Here's the real gem in this crown, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. John brings us here a greeting from God the Son, who's described by both who he is and what he's done. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he's the ruler over the kings of this earth. A faithful witness, we can see Jesus being a faithful man proclaiming and standing for the word of God. We see Jesus as the ruler over the kings. But many people are troubled by that statement there in verse 5 where it describes Jesus as being firstborn from the dead. Matter of fact, maybe at some time or another you got a knock on your door from somebody wanting to sell you a magazine where... All the pictures kind of look alike, and they must have the same art crew doing every kind of publication because it all looks the same. And they like to point out this verse and say, well, see, Jesus isn't God. He isn't equal to God the Father. He was born. He's the firstborn. Now, he's the most wonderful of all of God's creation, but that's all he is. He's just a creature. He's not the creator. Now, my friends, we need to understand that this word firstborn, speaks to Jesus' standing as preeminent among all beings, that he's first in priority. Understand something, that in Hebrew kind of thinking, firstborn was a title of preeminence. Why? Because the firstborn in every family was the top dog. If there were three sons in a family, when it came time to divide the inheritance, who was first in line? The firstborn. 
When it came time to divide anything in the family, who was first in line, who was always the apple of his father's eye, it was always the firstborn. And so firstborn became a title of preeminence, of prominence. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us to have Jesus called the firstborn from the dead. As a matter of fact, do you know that ancient rabbis, ancient Jewish rabbis called Yahweh himself firstborn? Let me read to you a quote here. It's from a Rabbi Bechai, and it's cited in Lightfoot's commentary on the Colossians, where the ancient rabbis themselves called Yahweh the firstborn of the world. And they also considered firstborn to be a messianic title. Another rabbi writes, and he says, God said, as I made Jacob a firstborn, so also will I make King Messiah a firstborn. So firstborn's a messianic title. It's a title given by ancient Jewish rabbis to God, Yahweh himself. So it doesn't surprise us at all to see the same title of preeminence given to Jesus here in verse 5. So don't you love how each member of the Trinity is introduced here? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this is how the New Testament teaches us the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't spell out an elaborate systematic theology about the Trinity. It just weaves it into the fabric of everything. Now, pick it up here in the middle of verse 5. This, this is what started getting me really excited, probably out of selfish reasons, because this is, this is where it comes down to us. Look at it here. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice, first of all, do you see that title of Jesus, that description of Jesus there in the middle of verse 5? It says, to him who loved us. Now, I am aware that certain translations, such as the New American Standard, the New International Version and the New Living Translation translated that to him who loves us. And there's some dispute among scholars which is more accurate there, either loved in the past tense or loves in the present tense. But I want to focus on the one that I, that I prefer there, and that's him who loved us. You see, my friends, there's something beautiful about the idea that Jesus loved us in the past tense. You see, because when it says that, even as it does in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, where it talks about that Jesus loved us, when it looks back, it looks back to the cross. And it gives us a secure rootedness in the love of God. Every believer should be secure in God's love not based on their present circumstances. Your present circumstances this evening may be extremely difficult. Your present circumstances may say to you tonight that Jesus doesn't love you. But your rootedness in the love of Jesus should not be based on your present circumstance, but it should be based on the ultimate demonstration of love at the cross. Friends, that's worth praising Jesus about. Paul put it like this in Romans 5.8. He said, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us. He loved us in the past. The work of Jesus on the cross for us is God's ultimate proof of his love for you. 
Do you understand that God cannot give you any greater proof of his love for you than of what Jesus did on the cross? And that's why he wants to echo it back. He loved you. He loved you. Pointing back to a past event. It's highlighting the cross for us. He loved you. Now God can give you additional proof, but he can give you no greater proof than what Jesus did at the cross. Might I say that in light of this, no wonder many believers are not secure in knowing the love of Jesus towards them. Because they look to their present circumstances to measure the love of God. They're asking all the time, does he love me? Does he love me? Does he love me? And you know what? On a good day, he loves me. On a bad day, he loves me not. And they're those daisy-plucking Christians, right? He loves me, he loves me not. But friends, when your awareness of the love of Jesus is rooted not in your present circumstance, but in a past event, he loved me. Then you know what? Then there's just one kind of petal on that daisy, isn't there? It's he loved me. He loved me. He loves us. We need to look back to the cross and settle the issue once and for all and give praise to Jesus Christ, to him who loved us. But that's not all. Look at it. It gets better and better. Verse 5. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. This is what happened when Jesus loved us at the cross. He washed us. He cleansed us from the deep stain of sin so that we really are clean before him. I think that's worth praising Jesus about. Not only did he love us, he cleansed us. I say this is all the more precious when we understand our own deep sinfulness. When you understand how deep the stain of sin goes... You praise God all the more for what he says about the cleansing that the blood of Jesus provides. You know, it's no wonder that the same Apostle John would write in his letter of 1 John, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that beautiful? A complete cleansing. And how are we cleansed? Look at it there in verse 5. You can see it yourself. Washed us from our sins In his own blood. Friends, if there was any other way to wash us, if there was any other way to cleanse us from our sins, God would have done it that other way. But to wash us in his own blood meant that he paid the ultimate sacrifice to cleanse us. The sacrifice of God the Son himself. It couldn't have been done unless it was done the only way. That was the only way it could happen. Charles Spurgeon said that that the priest could only cleanse with the blood of bulls and goats, but he has washed us from from our sins in his own blood. Men are willing enough to shed the blood of others. How readily they will enter upon war. But Christ was willing to shed his own blood, to pour out his own soul unto death, that we might be saved. Do you notice the order there, my friends? What came first, the washing or the loving? The loving came first, didn't it? He didn't wash us out of pity and then sort of find out, hey, they're not so bad after all, after I washed them. Well, I could love this guy. No, no, God says, I see how dirty you are. I see how deep the stain goes. And I love you. Let me wash you. Let me cleanse you. Might I say, in fact, washing proves love, doesn't it? 
say you got an old pair of pants and you're using them to, to, to wear while you painted the house, right? You didn't want to put on a nice pair of pants, but you put on an old pair of pants. You know how it is with painting. It's never as neat as you think it'll be. <laughs> and before it's over, those pants are covered with paint. They're covered with paint. Well, you, you, you would only wash them and keep them for one of two reasons, right? The first reason you might wash them and keep them is because you are so poor that you can't get another pair of pants, right? Th- that would make sense. Look, I am so poor, I can't get another pair of pants, so I've got to make do with what I have. I'll wash them and I'll cleanse this. Now, friends, let me ask you this. When the human race got stained, was God so poor that he couldn't just make another creation? That he couldn't, so to speak, buy another pair of pants? You know he could, right? God is not poor. God's not lacking in power or in riches in any way at all. So why else would you wash that pair of pants? You know why? Because you love that pair of pants, don't you? Oh, they're comfortable. They fit just right, don't they? Oh, you, you, you love those pants, and you really love them, and money isn't the issue. You could go down and buy a new pair of pants any time, but you love that pair of pants so much that you spend the time and the effort to clean them and to use them again. God loves us so much that he washed us. He's not poor. With the barest thought, he could have obliterated every sinner and started over with clean, brand new creatures, but he doesn't. He loves us so much that he washes us. I might I say as well, again, we come to another textual question there in verse 5, where some scholars believe that John wrote the words that he loosed us by his own blood or freed us instead of washed us. Do you know why some people say, well, how could they mix up loosed us or freed us and washed us. I mean, pretty different. Well, the the original Greek language, the difference between the words loosed us and washed us, it's one letter. And in some manuscripts it says loosed us, and in some manuscripts it says washed us. Probably the better evidence is to say washed us. But you know what? It's true that he loosed us as well, isn't it? This is a win-win proposition. You're either cleansed from your sin or set free from your sin. I'll I'll take both of them, as a matter of fact. The Bible says both are true for us. Now, it would have been enough, wouldn't it? He loved you. He washed you. Friends, then look at verse 6. This, this is just out of our minds. He says, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is status that Jesus gives to those people whom he loved at the cross and who are washed in his own blood. Now, it would have been enough just to love them and cleanse them, but he goes far beyond. He makes us, he makes you a king and a priest to his God and Father. I get bold behind this pulpit and say that this is more than Adam ever had. Show me where God ever said that Adam was a king and a priest to God, his father. You see, even in the innocence of Eden, we never hear of Adam among the kings and priests of God. Friends, this is worth Jesus. This is worth praising Jesus about, I should say. And we're kings. So this means we are God's royalty. This speaks of privilege and status and authority. 
And we're priests. That means we're God's special servants. We represent God to man and we represent man to God. And we offer sacrifice to him, the sacrifices of our praise. And we have privileged access to the presence of God. We're kings and priests. Now, in light of all that, could there be any other line that concludes verse 6? Could it be any different than this? Ray says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In light of all that Jesus has done for us, shouldn't we praise him? Shouldn't we honor him with all glory and dominion forever and ever? Now, when we say this, we aren't giving Jesus glory and dominion. Might I tell you, friends, he has it already. In a sense, there's nothing we can add to the glory or dominion of Jesus Christ. But there's another sense in which we can add to it. Jesus will not lack his praise. If we don't praise him, the stones will cry out and praise him. But how much glorious, how much more glorious, I should say, it is when many voices praise him. When many voices cry out glory and dominion and honor be yours forever and ever. You see, it's really not that we're giving Jesus glory and dominion. We're simply recognizing that he has it and we're honoring him for it. Now, what does it mean to recognize the glory of Jesus? Well, you could say all day long, you know, glory to you, Jesus, glory to you, Jesus, and that's wonderful. But it also means to come out and out for Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Charles Spurgeon said, Some of you are very much like a mouse behind the cupboard. You're in the Lord's house, but you're not known as one of the family. Sometimes you give a little squeak in your hiding place. And sometimes you come out at night, as a mouse does, to pick up a crumb or two without being seen. Is this worthy of yourself? Is it worthy of your Lord and Master? But when you say glory, when you give glory to Jesus Christ, you're not afraid to stand out and out for Jesus Christ, are you? You say, count me among him. I'm a follower of Jesus. If, if the followers of Jesus are going to be mocked, well, then here I am, because I'm going to follow him. What does it mean to recognize the dominion of Jesus? Well, it means to let him rule over ourselves. Jesus' dominion to you over every kingdom and every planet and every universe. But not dominion over my life, Lord. There's some things I want to do. Doesn't fit, does it? Not to, to give Jesus this kind of dominion means that we give him dominion over ourselves. Again, Spurgeon wrote, he said, Each man is a little empire of three kingdoms, body, soul, and spirit, and it should be a united kingdom. Make Christ king of it all. Do not allow any branch of those three kingdoms to set itself up for a distinct rule. Put them all under the rule of the one king. So he says there, verse 6, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we've got so much to praise Jesus for. Let's conclude here. Last couple verses. We'll just take it through verses 7 and 8. Some of you were a little nervous here looking at the lateness of the hour. I wonder if we're going to take a whole chapter or two. No, we'll finish up with verse 8 here this evening. 
Now this, this is spectacular. Look at it here, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Now look at it. It says there, behold, he is coming. You know what the word behold means, right? It means to look. It means to check it out. That's what he's saying. Behold, look at this. He's trying to call our attention. He's pulling you by the shirt. He's saying, look, look. Look at what? Well, look at it here. Look, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. John moves from praising Jesus to describing his return, and he wants us to behold the coming of Jesus. Now, Jesus said that we should watch and wait for his coming. It's something to keep before the eye of our mind, to behold the coming of Jesus. And I want to ask you something. Have you lost sight of the coming of Jesus Christ? Now, I don't mean lost sight of it as, as an intellectual idea. Of course, you may say, well, of course, intellectually, I agree Jesus is coming, etc., etc. You know all the doctrines in the right way. But you know what I mean, don't you? You've lost sight of it. You just don't think of it very often that Jesus Christ is coming soon, and I need to be ready for it. That's what John's trying to do. He's trying to awaken you to this. He's grabbing you tonight. He says, behold, look, look, he's coming. Jesus Christ, he went to heaven, but he didn't go to stay there. He went to heaven for your benefit. Do you understand that? Jesus went to heaven for one reason, because he could serve you better from heaven than he could on this earth. And he's going to return one day for the same reason, that it's time, and then in the fullness of the time, it'll be better for him to serve us here on this earth. Now, what I think is wonderful about this is that this This wasn't a supernatural vision that John had of Jesus' return. Look at it here in verse 7. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And you almost think, oh, wow, John's just having this vision, and there it is. Oh, he sees. No. You know where John got verse 7 from? From the words of Jesus himself and from the scriptures. The, The supernatural vision is going to come later. This description is based from John's understanding of Old Testament promises of the Messiah's return and from Jesus' own words about his return. For example, how did John know that Jesus was coming? Because Jesus said he was coming. John 14, 3, he said, I will come again and receive you to myself. There you go. John knew it. So he's coming. And he's coming what? Look at it there, verse 7. He's coming with clouds. Now, when Jesus comes, he's going to be surrounded by clouds. This will be true literally, because when Jesus left the earth, it says that he was taken up into clouds. And the angels who surrounded the disciples at the time of Jesus' ascension, they said, you see how Jesus went up? He said, he's going to come back down in exactly the same way. So he went up to the clouds. He's going to come down from the clouds. I don't know if it's fair to say that if it's a clear day outside, Jesus isn't going to return that day. Well, no, 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 because let's remember that even though it may be clear right where we're at, it's cloudy somewhere else in this world, isn't it? So Every day can be the day when Jesus Christ returns. But friends, it's also true in a figurative manner that he's going to come with clouds because multitudes of believers are called clouds in a figurative manner. We're the cloud. You might say, that's funny. Why would we be called clouds? I mean... Where's the similarity? Where's the, you know, where's the link point there? And we're just 
gaseous, empty things hanging in the sky? I mean, what's, what kind of description of believers is that? No, 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 no. You, you see, that this wonderful connection is simply here. So often in the Old Testament, a cloud represented the glory of God. The Old Testament uses a specific word, the Shekinah, glory of God. This cloud of God's glory. The cloud that filled the tabernacle. The cloud that surrounded Mount Sinai. The cloud that filled the temple at its dedication. The cloud of God's glory. And you know what he says? He looks at you tonight and he says, you are my glory. You are my cloud. That's why he says believers are a cloud. Not because we're all light and airy and empty. But because we are his Shekinah. We are his glory. Now, John didn't need a special vision to know that he's coming with the clouds. No. He knew this from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7 says it. But he also knew it from Jesus' own words. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus said it. And then it says, look at verse 7, and every eye will see him. Now, when Jesus comes, it will not be a secret coming. Everyone will know. At his first coming, let's admit it, Jesus was somewhat obscure. If they published a daily newspaper in the city of Rome at the time of Jesus, Jesus would have never made the newspaper. Certainly would have never made the front page. But when Jesus comes again, every eye will see him. The whole world will know. Now, John didn't need a special revelation to know that every eye will see him. John heard Jesus himself say, for as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know how it is when lightning flashes all across the sky? Even if you're inside, you know what happened. He says, just like that is going to be the coming of the Son of Man. And it says in verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him. Now, when Jesus comes, it will be a particularly meaningful revelation for the Jewish people. Now, of course, we know that it was more than the Jewish people who pierced Jesus, correct? But we know John has in mind the revelation of Jesus to his own people, because this is an allusion to Zechariah 12.10, which refers to Jesus being revealed to his own people. You see, when Jesus reveals himself to his own people, the Jewish people, it will not be in anger, because by that time, the Jewish nation will have turned to Jesus, trusting in him as their Messiah. If that sounds fantastic, just wait. You haven't seen anything yet in the book of Revelation. Stick with us. But you see, when they see Jesus, and when they see his pierced hands and feet, it will be a painful reminder of their previous rejection of him. And it will fulfill this scene from Zechariah 12.10, where it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. Can you imagine that scene? Jewish people expecting Jesus. Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The the Jewish people will be expecting Jesus, trusting in him as the Messiah at the very end times before Jesus returns. And when he comes and when they see his pierced hands and feet, it wasn't that they didn't know about it before, but you know the difference between knowing about it and then seeing it, don't you? Their heart will break and say, 
We, we did that. And John didn't need a special vision to know this. He could read it in Zechariah 12.10. Then it says finally in verse 7, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Now, when Jesus comes, it won't be only the Jewish people who mourn because of their previous rejection of Jesus. Since there will be people saved from all the tribes of the earth, everyone will have a part in this mourning. We will all look at the scars of Jesus, and you know what we'll say? We'll say, we did this to him. Friends, isn't that been the great tragedy, a tremendous tragedy, of the way that the institutional church through its history has sought to malign the Jewish people and call them the, the most horrific of all titles, Christ killers, and use that as an excuse for anti-Semitism and persecution of the Jewish people. If you want to look at a Christ killer, look at me. Or look at yourself in the mirror. Because it was your sins, my sins, that drove him to the cross. Jesus wasn't the victim of circumstances. He went because of our sin. Not because of a plot hatched against him. He went willingly because of our sin. So finally, it's enough from the words of John. Now Jesus bursts in on the scene in verse 8, and he gives his own introduction, and it's with verse 8 that we'll end this evening, where he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now in many translations and in red letter editions, these words were in red. And this shows that the translators believed that these were the words of Jesus. I believe they're correct. And Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You know what Alpha and Omega were? They were the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus saying, I'm the A and I'm the Z. I'm the beginning and the end. Now, if you're the A and you're the Z, you also own everything in between, might I say. If you're the beginning, if you're the end, you got the middle covered too. He has authority over everything in between friends. This means that Jesus Christ has a plan for history and he directs the path of human events towards that design fulfillment. Our lives are not given over to blind faith, excuse me, to blind fate, to to random meaninglessness, to endless cycles without any resolution. No, Jesus Christ, who's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he directs all of human history and even our individual lives. You want even more on that? He says, look at verse 8. Who is and who was and who is to come. Jesus says, I'm eternal too. We saw that the Father was eternal back in verse 4, but Jesus says, I am eternal too. It's the same idea expressed in Hebrews 13.8 where it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you want that to be an anchor for you tonight? It means that Jesus isn't going to change his mind about you. Yeah, have somebody who's a good friend of yours for a while, and then something happened, and for some reason, maybe it was your fault, maybe it was their fault, maybe it was a combination too, but they changed their mind about you. And you would have never thought it would happen, because you're such good friends with that person at one time. Jesus is never going to change his mind about you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then the last words there, I love it. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The word almighty translates another interesting ancient Greek word. 
The Greek word is, this isn't important, I'm just trying to impress you, a book I read in. <laughs> the ancient Greek word is pantocrator. But what it means is really special. You know what it means? It means the one who has his hand on everything. That's Jesus Christ. The one who has his hand on everything. It speaks of the great sovereign control of Jesus over everything, past, present, and future. That great word, almighty, is used ten times in the New Testament. Ten. Nine of the ten are right here in the book of Revelation. This is all about the almighty God, about Jesus Christ, who has his hand on everything. So friends, is that a burden or a blessing to you tonight? You know, sometimes having somebody's hand, you remember how it was when you were a child, your dad would come put his shoulder on, a hand on your shoulder. And sometimes, oh, that was so comforting, wasn't it? You know, it was like, oh, dad, you're there. Oh, it's great. And other times, at least it was like this with me, when I was being a bad boy, that hand on the shoulder just doesn't feel the same, does it? <laughs> now, it's not that anything's changed in him. It's that something was different in me, right? Oh, I want to align myself under the will of God. so that when his hand is on me, it's a hand of blessing. And, you know, e- even when the hand lays heavy on you, that's still a hand of blessing, isn't it? Because it's a hand to bring you back to that place. He's almighty. He's almighty over our lives, isn't he? Well, friends, I I hope tonight that in a small way, verse 3 has been made real to your life, that you've been blessed. But there's more to come. There's more blessing in it. And we're going to get into it next week. Let's pray and thank God for it here tonight. Lord God, Jesus, all we can do tonight is praise you. We we say it to you too, Lord, that, that, that unto you, Lord, we say, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're a great God. We thank you that you have your hand on everything, that you have your hand on our lives. Father, pour out the, the riches of your goodness to us. Even when your hand lays heavy upon us, allow us to see the blessing in even that. Lord, tonight we worship you. Tonight we thank you. And we ask that you'd open up our eyes to see your truth in this book of Revelation. Lord, just as much as you want to bless us, we know that there's an enemy of our souls who would love to rob us of a blessing. I pray that no person here tonight would be robbed of the great blessing that you're going to give us as we spend time in this book of Revelation. Pour out your spirit on us, Lord. Thank you. Help us to to respond rightly over your hand that's upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.